Welcome to the 193rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Alex Marwood, author of The Wicked Girls and The Killer Next Door. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alex Marwood, author of two well-reviewed suspense novels, The Killer Next Door and The Wicked Girls. Stephen King wrote, if you read Alex Marwood's The Wicked Girls, her new one, The Killer Next Door, is even better. Scary as hell, great characters. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, Jeff. Great. Well, can I have you read from your novel, The Killer Next Door? Absolutely, yes. Um, that would be lovely. Thank you. Um, okay, so what I'm going to read today is, um, uh, is, is basically the second chapter rather than, um, than the opening of the book, um, which is where you first meet... I'm terribly sorry, I'm going to cough. <coughs> I have a nasty cold. Um, which is where you meet the um, the serial killer for the first time. The the the, the book has um, a few uh, scenes from his point of view scattered throughout it. Um, so here we go. Um, he's a magnificent cat, rangy and black and swaggering, with great vampire incisors that extend most of the way to his jawline green eyes and a kinked tail that speak of oriental blood and a scarred left ear that shows that he's not afraid to fight. Today, he's asserting his mastery of his territory by visiting. He's been attached to the house for so long that no one remembers who originally brought him here or if indeed anybody did. Some tenants shoo him away with angry hisses, afraid of his panther grace and unblinking stare. Some sweep him into their arms with coos and growls of admiration, give him a warm place to sleep and weep when they, as they all do, have to leave him behind. Twenty-six tenants have passed through the house on Beulah Grove since he took up residence, and he's never gone hungry enough to move on himself. He has had many names, and for now it's Psycho. He stands in the window... The lover has thrown it wide because the heat inside is so stifling he's afraid he'll make the air damp with his sweat and surveys the space, then leaps onto the back of the chair where the girl sits. He leans forward and sniffs her ginger hair, touches an ear with his fine damp nose. Affronted by her failure to respond, he raises his face and looks up at the man. Blinks. The lover is weeping. He sits in a folded chair against the far wall, his face buried in his hands and rocks. The tears come more quickly every time. He used to have a few hours, even a day or two, in which to savour the company, enjoy the romance before the despair overtook him, to hold the hand and stroke the cheek and take pleasure into togetherness. But each event seems less delightful than the last, seems to pass so quickly that almost as soon as it's done, the yearning begins again, the loneliness breaking over his head like a wave. He's apologising, as he always does. I'm sorry, he says, and the words catch salty in his throat. Oh, Nicky, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean it. She doesn't reply. Stares vacant past his shoulder, her mouth half open, surprised. You just, he says, I was afraid you were going to go away again. I can't bear it, you see, can't bear it. I'm so alone. He continues to weep. He's consumed with self-pity, eaten up with the emptiness of his own existence. My life is full of busy work, he thinks. I do and I act and I help and I organize. And at the end of the day, it's always the same. Just me. 
me alone in the world going on as though I had never existed. They wouldn't notice none of them for months if I disappeared. Families like mine, no money, fractured marriages, siblings only half-related and homes already full to bursting. We drift apart when someone goes away. I don't speak to my half-brothers or sisters from one year's end to the next, just bump into them sometimes when I make the trip back at Christmas. Worst of all, my mother always sounds surprised to hear my, my voice on the phone. So she hears it regular as clockwork, first Sunday of every month, while songs of praise is on. They wouldn't notice. Nobody would notice. I could vanish in a puff of smoke and make a nasty cleaning up job for someone further down the line. He raises his eyes and looks at Nicky, the source of his suffering. A pretty girl. Not spectacular. Not anything that anyone would say was out of his league. Though he supposes that eyebrows might be raised at the difference in their ages. It was all I ever wanted, he thinks. A nice girl. No great ambition, no overwhelming passion like they play out in the movies. No champagne and roses, just someone to stay with me. Someone who wouldn't go away. The cat is standing by the wardrobe now, sniffing at the crack between the doors. The lover leaps to his feet and shoes it off, claps his hands and hisses so that it tenses, and then, with a baleful yell, jumps onto the bed and out of the window. Wonderful. Yeah, sorry. Okay. That's okay. That'll do. Yep. Um, did I interrupt you or, or were you finished? Uh, yeah, sorry. I was just, um, <coughs> there's a little bit more, but okay. I don't know. Is that long no, enough? No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. Why don't you, why don't you finish? Okay, cool. Um, uh, okay, okay. He considers closing it to keep the cat out but in this heat his dwelling space has become stifling and he's afraid that that the smells it draws out will spread through the house he wipes his salty face on his sleeve and tries to pull himself together we can have a nice evening at least he thinks as he looks back at his silent companion I'll have a glass of wine hold her hand maybe she'd like to watch a film with me before we begin her right hand, knocked by the cat's passing, slips suddenly from the arm of the chair and hangs in mid-air, still and soft. Such a pretty hand, he thinks. The nails are with clean and scrupulously shaped. I noticed that about her the first time I saw her. Always wanted to take it in my own, to press its smooth skin between my palms. No time like the present. He fetches the fold-up chair and places it beside the armchair. Funny, he thinks. She looks smaller than she used to, more fragile, more frail. More like someone who needs my protection. He puts the forearm back along the chair's arm and goes to the kitchen drawer to fetch the scissors. Cuts very slowly, very carefully through the duct tape around the neck, then lifts the plastic bag it holds there, thick, heavy and transparent, from her head, carefully so as not to mess up her lovely hair. He'll give her a bath later. Strip off her stained clothing and run it through the washing machine, shampoo her sweaty locks and comb them down, dust her with baby powder. In heat like this, it'll all be dry in no time. There, he says kindly and plants a loving kiss on her temple where no pulse beats any more. He takes his seat and lifts the hand just briefly to his lips. There, he says again and enfolds it between his own larger, rougher palms as he's always imagined. This is nice, isn't it? He asks rhetorically. Okay, that is it. That's, that's great. Well, well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Killer Next Door, yet, how would you describe yeah. the novel? Um, well, um, well, it's it's uh, I, I suppose you you would say that it was psychological suspense. It's um, 
um, it's very, very loosely based. It's, it's, it's partly, um, partly a great, my love letter to London, where I live, which I absolutely adore. But it's very, very loosely based on um, uh, the activities of a serial killer who was, um, who was, was working the streets of London um, in the early 1980s, who was a chap called Dennis Nilsson, um, who managed to um, kill um, upwards of 12 young men. They've never actually found out how many... Um, but but it was at least twelve. Um, and dispose of their bodies while living in a shared house with um, a number of other people in a in a rooming house. And um, I think the the question that sort of always goes through all Londoners' minds is how on earth did the other people living in this house not notice? Um, and um, I'm sort of ex- that's really what I'm sort of ex- um, exploring in this book is um, is what what on earth was going on with the other people in the house while Dennis Nilsson was doing his killings. And and was that a case that you had um, kind of in your mind and that you had known about when you wanted to start yeah. writing? I think all all Londoners are absolutely um, absolutely fascinated by that case because. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. We're also aware of how 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 much we live on top of each other, and how um you know it's it's a very it's a very crowded city. Um, I mean it's not it's not you know tall like a lot of American cities, but it is very crowded. You know I have um um uh hang on one two uh, eight flats that are contiguous with mine in one way or another. You know and um um and 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 really how we all um. How we all managed to live so crowded together, I think, is by according each other the um, the politeness of 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 pretending that that our neighbours don't exist most of the time, and it's not standoffishness; it's actually a sort of a form of courtesy. Um, and you know that um, that is that is how we how we 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 contrive to live in London, and that is also how these terrible things manage to happen without um you know without anybody actually picking up on them and 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 how do you how do you think that happened in the in the real life case? Do you think that people were just um kind of oblivious in some ways yes i mean i think i th- i think as as i said I think people are sort of you know there, there is a sort of strange london thing of 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 just pretending you haven't noticed stuff going on. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure at least one of my neighbours can probably hear me giving this, um, you know, uh, having this conversation with you now. But they're they're blurring it out, you know. But I know, I know a great deal more about, you know, my neighbours' sex lives and things than I would like to. Um, but we all have to greet each other in the street pleasantly in the morning, um, and so we all just. You know, manage to manage to remove evidence of of, um, of 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 anything that might disturb us from our minds. I think. Sure, sure. Well, had you written fiction before you wrote your first novel, The Wicked Girls? Yes, I used to write under my own name, which is Serena McAfee. I started my um I started my career as a journalist. I was I worked for the Independent, which is a national newspaper in the UK, for about. 15 years, I suppose, and then in 1999, I wrote my first novel, which was called The Temp, which um, was sort of chick, uh, chick lit, as they call it. It was certainly packaged as chick lit. Sure. And I was writing very dark, um, I suppose, very dark romantic comedies. Um, and um, it, it just, it, it got a bit difficult, really, with the, pa- the because my packaging, you know, my my, my 
basically Random House got a bit disappointed with with how dark my stuff was compared with the packaging they wanted to give it. (laughs) So I decided that the easiest thing to do, to be honest, would be just to change my name and get rid of the romantic element and keep the darkness and the comedy. Sure, sure. Well, what what was the shift like when you uh, when you went from writing nonfiction for the Independent to writing that first novel, The Temp? Do you remember? Well, it was it was extraordinary. It was, uh, they, they are two very different skills, and it was quite terrifying writing the first one. In fact, my, the first one came out of um, I, the, the bare bones of it existed um, already because I'd been writing it as a column for some time for the Independent anonymously. I was sort of. Um, um, zhuzhing up the secretarial pages where there used to be secretarial pages in newspapers in those days by with this sort of comic office anthropology um, column where I was I was a, um, a temp secretary and and so every time and and I'd sort of do um, yeah you know the the the, uh, the anthropological you know inner workings of human beings in offices and every time I got bored with one set of people I could just you know get another job and move on. Um, <laughs> So I had the bare bones there, but then yes, it was it was it was quite terrifying actually. Suddenly finding myself going from writing you know a thousand words um, in a row and 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 being very familiar and comfortable with that shape to suddenly having to do one hundred and twenty thousand, um, and it was the most fantastic um, fantastic thing. Um, but it was absolutely terrifying, um, and um, I, I really don't think I slept properly. While I was writing my first two books, until I sort of got to understand how it's done, I now, funnily enough, find writing journalism terribly difficult because of the sort of lack of um, um, <laughs> the lack of freedom um, in terms in terms of um, in terms of being able to pursue things that have interested one further. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the sort of succinctness of journalism is um, is, is an extraordinary skill, and I'm, I'm rather afraid that I've sort of lost it now. <laughs> so, so what did you think? when you when you first read Stephen King's blurb for the killer next door um i uh i pretty much pretty much uh screamed out loud basically <laughs> <laughs> it was just extraordinary when um he he the wicked girls he um he he's he is a um you know ob- obviously i mean it, it's just he has always been my great writing hero. So, um, you know, on a personal level, just my sort of utter admiration of him and the sort of the extraordinary humanity that's at the at the core of his work and his wonderful use of language, um, you know, have always been a great inspiration as far as I'm concerned. So, um, you know, getting um, uh, getting praise from from Stephen King is sort of like getting a thumbs up from God as far as I'm concerned. So, I was just. Um, you know, uh, uh, really speechless with speechless with joy and astonishment. That that's great. Well, well, given that you have written the the your chiclet novels and now the the two um, psychological suspense novels, yeah. what what advice would you have for aspiring writers who who may be wanting to write their own novels? Well, I think you know the the the, the first most important thing is just that you know um, the difference. Between ninety percent of the difference between um, a writer and somebody who wants to write is that a writer actually finishes what they what they what they're doing, and actually gets it, gets it, you know gets to the end, um, you know and um, and that is actually I, I know that sounds sort of um, 
rather odd, but, you know, most people do. I mean, certainly I, I absolutely lose faith halfway through anything that I'm writing and start going. And, and actually the beginning I find pretty daunting as well. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 I always start questioning what on earth made me think that I was fit to write a novel and capable of doing it. Um, and forging your way, forcing your way through that um is um uh is 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 really you know is ninety percent of the battle really um don't expect it to happen quickly um it takes me at least a year to write a novel usually but the best part of two um and um um so you know it can become terribly terribly um um demoralizing and stressful, but you just have to understand that that is the process and that is how long it takes um <coughs> the other thing is um accept and be grateful for editing um i think a, a lot of a lot of people i mean i certainly were well I, I found being edited with my first book a very difficult and painful process because one just finds it so hard to accept even though you know i'd had 15 years as a journalist where nobody even asked you and they changed their stuff they just did it you know it's still remarkably um remarkably painful to accept that what you have produced is not perfect but it's actually the most important thing you can do of all and you should be jolly grateful for it that somebody is prepared to do that um i think though the other thing i would say is that i'm i i don't show my work in progress to anybody um and the first people that see my work in progress will be my editor and my agent um i think that there are a lot of um uh, with all the will in the world, you know, your friends will tell you that it's marvellous um, because, um, you know, because they're kind and they like you and they want you to be happy. And, you know, your peers will not, you know, people at writing groups, I I have generally found that there, there, there will always be at least one person in a writing group who feels themselves to be in competition with everybody else. And, um, um, and, and, and you know, people can quite often get their... Um, uh, self-confidence quite battered by those sorts of um, those sorts of situations. Um, so really, yeah, don't. don't I, my rule is never to show anything to anybody who doesn't have a vested interest in um, in a, a vested financial interest. In it, basically. <laughs> um, and the other thing is Stephen King's great thing, which is some um, go through your manuscript and get rid of all your adverbs. That's great. Well, well, are there any classic suspense writers that you study or that inspire you when you're in the middle of that novel and um, you're struggling? I, I read. I actually, I read a lot more nonfiction when I'm writing. I find that, um, uh, on the whole, I find that actually reading other other people's fiction writing tends to put me off my stride. Um, that said, I've just gone back. Actually, I'm having I'm having great difficulty with the timeline with the book that I'm writing at the moment, um, which is um, as both of my other books are on two timelines, but it's a much more complicated timeline structure. This, and I've been having great difficulty. So, I went back and re read um barbara vine's wonderful book um a fatal inversion which was um i now call, i think it's about ni- uh, the late 80s it was written in and i think it was it was fairly much the, the first psychological suspense novel that I, I remember reading and i remember reading it and just going oh my god this is this is what i want to be doing this is what <laughs> i want to write for a living um and her her her, you know, but I, I was very much reading it for 
structural stuff rather than for just um for 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 just reading so i was sort of reading it like a like a like a sort of work thing in a way rather than reading for inspiration as such and it is still just the most extraordinary book it's it's it's, it's brilliant in every way and she breaks a million rules all of the things that they tell you you shouldn't <laughs> do like having more than one point of view in a chapter and um and, and more than one timeline in a in a chapter and this sort of stuff she does right the way through and she does it with such exquisite um um <coughs> professionalism that i am still completely in awe of that book um i i love um uh, in terms of people I sort of read when I'm sort of trying to trying to get started or trying to sort of yeah work myself up to wanting to write again, uh, I love Jeff Lindsay's Dexter books. Um, the uh, Patricia Highsmith, um, you know, the Ripley books are just extraordinary. Um, and I read a lot of Stephen King. Great. Well, um, do you want to talk at all about the novel that you're working on now, or, or do you want to? Wait? Um, it's. Well, very, very loosely, um, it is um, basically about. Um, I say, uh, the working title is "The Long Weekend," um, and it's about um, a bunch of people who get together for a long weekend, obviously in um, in in a big house to celebrate somebody's um, one of somebody's milestone birthday. Um, and something terrible happens over the course of that weekend, and um, the and, and then basically what happens to them over the over the twelve years since. That, that... Um, and so it's about secrets, people keeping people keeping secrets, and the ramifications of doing so. That's great. Well, we'll look for that. Uh, well, again, we we've, we've been speaking with Alex Marwood, author of The Killer Next Door and The Wicked Girls. Both novels are in bookstores now, so go, so go grab a copy. And Alex, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for asking me.